0: to officially kick off a new series today, and we've got a two-week lead-in to our study on a new book, and I'm going to tell you what that study is. But I want to share my heart with you, first of all, because this study has been something that I think God has been really stirring up within me for a whole year. Uh, When I think about the topic, when I think about the um, biblical topic that is most heavy on my heart, that I'm thinking about the most, that I care about the most right now, I would have to say that it is the church. Uh, The church right now is something that is not looked upon favorably in our world. Let me ask you a question. If you knocked on a hundred doors in your community this week, door to door to door, and you ask them one question, tell me what you think about the church. Do you think you could get one person to smile and to say the church? Do you think you could get two people to light up with joy and to say the church? Do you think you could get even a whole hand of people in your neighborhood to start talking to you about the church? Because I don't know that I could. I don't know that I could. I sent out an email this week. I hope you're you're on our email list and Here's what I said, I'm launching a new series this weekend that will revolutionize the way you see the church. Let's face it, the church is being battered by the media, being used by politicians, being corrupted by Hollywood, being devoured by false teachers, and divided by selfish saints. How, given this, can we experience God's glory in the church? That's the question we're going to be asking and answering all year long. How can we experience God's glory in the church? I don't know what you want when you show up to church, but I want to encounter God. I want to enjoy community that can be found nowhere else on the planet. That's what I want. And I don't just want to consume that. I want to assemble that and be a part of building that. There's a lot stacked against us. Because that's really my heart and that's where I feel and the elders feel where God's leading us, we're going to spend 40 weeks studying the book of Ephesians together. We're going to take two weeks leading in the book of Acts so that we can see where the church even came from. But then once we cover the introductory material, we are going to be in the book of Ephesians uh, for 40 weeks. The book of Ephesians uniquely deals with the idea of the body of Christ. Colossians and Ephesians are the twin epistles, and Colossians is like the head, who Jesus is, and Ephesians is the body, what the church is, where it came from, and what it's designed to be. So we're going to dig into that book all year long. But we can't just leap over the reality of what is it? What is the church, and where did it come from? So that's what we're going to cover today. Let me begin by sharing with you an illustration that I think uh, vividly portrays what happened when the Church of Christ was born. The year was 1961, Let me take you back to a location in northern Russia where the Russians had one objective, to detonate the world's largest nuclear bomb ever tested. It was a 50 megaton bomb, an explosion equivalent to all the bombs dropped in World War II combined, times 10. That's how huge of an explosion this is. It was named the Tsar bomb, the king of bombs. Check it out. Here was the bomb. (laughs) Шар превращается в колоссальный светящийся купол. Яркое свечение еще продолжается. В этом опыте оно длится необычайно долго. This next picture gives you a proportion of the size of that bomb. A 50 megaton bomb on the right uh, let out that high of a mushroom cloud. Now look all the way at the left that's Hiroshima. See that tiny little mushroom cloud on the left? And next to that is Mount Everest. And then There's a plane at its cruising altitude and wow the biggest human man-made explosion ever detonated is quite impressive. But there is a greater explosion on record. The greatest explosion in human history makes the Tsar Bomb look like a firecracker. The explosion I'm talking about is a God-made divine explosion where a power so great was unleashed on a world so desperate that all of human history has formed and rippled according to the shockwaves of that one day. It is said that the shock waves from the Tsar bomb were measurable three times around the earth. But the explosion that I'm talking about today are still spreading around the world with greater intensity than ever before. I want to talk today about the birth of the Church of Jesus Christ. The greatest detonation in all of human history. What is the church? Where did it come from? That's what we're covering today. First, let's pray. Father, what a glorious day when the church of Christ was born. Show us the power that was unleashed that day. Show us the love that was unleashed that day. Show us how the world changed and is still changing because of the church of Jesus Christ. Bless us as we Head into this series, Jesus, because the church is your bride, but not many people today see her as beautiful. She's so broken. We're so broken. Help us to get our minds wrapped around where we're at, how we got here, and where we're going as a church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, verse 1. You're going to the Feast of Pentecost, which is about, Pentecost stands for 50, 50th, it's about 50 days after Uh, The um, 50 days after when Jesus would have been crucified, the Passover, Pentecost was one of three big pilgrim feasts in Jerusalem, swelled, the city swelled with people from all over the country. They celebrated the beginning of the wheat harvest, also the giving of the covenant to Noah and then to Moses. And we're arriving there now in Acts chapter 2, and we're learning about how the church was born. Uh, when, it's, when it talks about the birth of the church, Jesus told the disciples after he died, hey, stay in, stay in Jerusalem. And they went to Galilee for just a little bit and then came back, hey, stay here. Stay here until my Father gives you the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said the Spirit is with you, but he will be in you. Hadn't happened yet. And God was about to drastically change the way that he interacted with humanity. This is the birth of the church in chapter two of the book of Acts, where it says this, They were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They're filled with new wine. They're drunk. Skip ahead to verse 36. Peter stood up and preached. For the promise is for you, for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. With many other words he bore witness, continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and those were added that day about 3,000 souls. What you just heard is the birth of the church of Jesus Christ, the coming of God the Holy Spirit in wonder and power. A pouring out of God's love and his strength and his presence like never before in all of humanity. There was a longing in the Old Testament for God to pour his spirit out. In fact, Moses had God's spirit. Samson had God's spirit. David did and Saul and a handful of people. But he didn't come permanently and he didn't come on everyone. And Moses at one point said, How I wish God's spirit would be on on all of the people. But it didn't happen. But the prophets promised that there would come a day in the the end times when God would pour out His Spirit in a marvelous way like never before, unprecedented, and that finally happened at Pentecost when the Church of Christ was born. Here we have a wonderful event, the beginning of the church. Now, when it comes to what the church is, I'm actually going to preach these verses backwards. We're going to start with the ending. Because it explains the church. The first thing you can write down in your notes is this. The church is believers in Jesus Christ. What is the church? Believers in Jesus Christ. Peter says in verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. They said, What shall we do? Peter said in verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So it's very clear that the church is not a what. The church is not a where. The church is a who. Who believes that Jesus is the Lord and the Savior? Who's repented and been baptized to follow Him? That is the church. You're technically not at church right now. You either are the church or you're sitting among the church. The church is the people, the group of faithful followers of Jesus Christ who have been born again by grace through faith. It's crucial that we understand that the church is a group of people. And it's crucial that we understand who that group is. The church is not a group of religious people. The church is not a group of powerful or wealthy people. The church is not a group of smart, wise, well-established or connected people. The church is a group of saved people. If you have been saved by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a member of his church. If you have not been saved by faith through his grace, then you are not a member of his church. Jot this down. Do you believe Jesus is Lord and Savior? Jesus would ask questions sometimes of his disciples and his followers and One of his favorite questions was, who do you say I am? Maybe you imagine what it would be like to meet Jesus. Oh, meeting Jesus. Oh, how amazing that would be. But maybe you don't imagine it where he asks you a question and expects an answer. Maybe you don't imagine meeting Jesus and him fixing his gaze on you and saying, Paul, who do you say I am? putting you on the spot with a pop quiz. Al, who do you say I am? And he doesn't want to hear who your parents said he was. He doesn't want to hear what your denomination says about it, right? That's not Adrian. Who do you say I am? It's the most important question you'll ever answer. And he doesn't care if you have a position or a title. He, he asked the apostles, Mike, elder, who do you say I am? That's the most important question you'll ever answer. I'm really into reading books right now by Bill O'Reilly. He writes this series of books called Killing, Killing Reagan, Killing Lincoln, Killing Kennedy. How many of you have read any of those books before by Bill O'Reilly? Really fascinating, right? Kind of morbid because he writes about people who died, but it's really interesting when you know the suspense builds up. And uh, so I just finished *Killing Kennedy*, reading *Killing*. That sounded wrong. I didn't. I finished reading the book *Killing Kennedy* while I was at this trip. It's really interesting when you hear about who Kennedy was. He was powerful. He was popular. Uh, he he had enemies. He was grossly immoral. He was also a family man and. And so finally, when the shot rang out, people were like, well, who did he make mad the most? Like, and, and you hear all about his life, and it's fascinating to find out who he was. At the end of that book, no one was asking the question, so is he the Messiah? Is he God? No one, no one was even considering that question. Bill O'Reilly wrote another book called Killing Jesus. Highly recommend it. And on page one of that book, Here's what Bill O'Reilly writes. To say that Jesus of Nazareth was the most influential man who's ever lived is almost trite. Nearly 2,000 years after he was brutally executed by Roman soldiers, more than 2.2 billion humans attempt to follow his teachings and believe he is God. God. Is that what you believe? Do you believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the only one who is Lord and Savior? If you believe that, then you are a member of the church. If you don't, then you're not. How do you show that you're a believer in Jesus Christ? Well, jot this down. Have you repented of all of your sins? You cannot remain in your sin and enter the church of Christ. Now, if you're a Christian, will you still be tempted and will you still sin? Yes, but your relationship to sin has changed forever. The word repentance means you're walking one way and you stop and you turn and you begin going the other direction. You turn away from a life of bondage to sin. You turn away from a love affair with sin that has kept you in a toxic relationship from the time you were born. There has to be a decisive break, an eternity-altering change in, your, in the status of your relationship to sin or you won't go to heaven. So when did it end between you and sin? When did you break up? When did your relationship to sin change forever because you now have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? One good way to put it, uh, I I heard uh, a modern praise chorus by the writer Taylor Swift, and uh, (laughs) she said, we are never, ever, ever getting back together. Ever. And if that's happened between you and sin then you have a life-giving relationship with Jesus Christ. But if you're still bound up in this toxic affair, this this bondage, to sin, and there's never been a change to that, then likely you have never repented. There has to be a U-turn. There has to be a stop and a total change of direction. Have you repented of all of your sins? And then jot this down. Were you baptized after conversion? Did you make a public profession of faith? When did you go public and say, I am a born-again follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? He is my Lord and my Savior, and I'm done with sin forever. The Bible is very clear. Do not love the world or anything in the world, for the world and its desires are passing away. And here's the stark reality. Either you are in or you are out. Either you are bound up with Christ as the Lord and Savior, or you are still a slave to sin. Either you are a member of the church or you are not. Either the Holy Spirit of God has been poured into your heart or you are still separated from God at a distance greater than the Grand Canyon. It's either one or the other and there is no in between. There are therefore right now in this room believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and non-believers. There are those who are bound for heaven and there are those who are bound for hell. And many who are bound for hell think they're going to heaven. But I would like to give you a chance to evaluate based on what the Bible says. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is the church? Number one, believers in Jesus Christ. Number two, jot this down, filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit. So going back up to chapter 2, verse 1, it says, "When When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house. So there's like 120 believers here, and they're indoors. And out of nowhere, there's this tornado that whirls up. Now, if I made a list of things that I wouldn't want to experience indoors, tornado is toward the top. Are you with me? Like, like, like there, this sudden gushing wind, this rushing, flowing train, can't hear anything, is happening inside And as if that's not bad enough, it says it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Then it says that divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So there was this fire again, something that is not an indoor experience. There's a tornado and a raging fire indoors. Whoa! Now, these physical manifestations are meant to show us exactly what's happening spiritually. The Holy Spirit is coming in power. God is becoming present like never before. Why a wind? Because the Spirit of God is likened to a wind. Uh, When Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, he said that you don't know the Spirit's coming or going because it's just like the wind. It's like a breath. The word for spirit means like a wind or a breath. So a mighty rushing wind Physically shows you the coming of God spiritually. Why a fire? Well, you had Moses talking to a burning bush, right? Fire that burns but doesn't consume. Now there's not even a bush. It's just burning in the house. And then it divides apart, and then it comes inside of the 120 Christians who are in the presence there. That physically acts out a wonderful, marvelous fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. God the Spirit came down to inhabit the church, individually and corporately. The church is now the dwelling place of the holiest manifestation of God's presence. We are His temple. That cannot be explained. It's an unexplainable thing. But the church is filled with God's Holy Spirit. As a result of this, everyone around was bewildered, amazed, astonished. They were amazed at what was happening. A big gathering of people were, were out, and then they were also amazed at who it was happening to, the Galileans? You know, the, the northerners were kind of known as being a bit like southerners already was. All right, like rednecks? Hillbillies? Galileans? Those folk? It's like they're derogatory. What's going on with them? And some people were like, they're probably plastered. They're drunk, because they couldn't believe what was happening. The Spirit fell upon them. Who is this Holy Spirit? The third person of the Trinity. It's important to understand that it's a person, a personal spiritual being. So it's not a force, it's, it's, it's not something impersonal or natural. It's a supernatural being. The Holy Spirit speaks in the book of Acts. We can relate to the Spirit on a personal level. The Bible says we can grieve Him, we can stay in step with Him. It is a person. And this person of the Trinity directs all the attention, though, onto the Son of God. So the Holy Spirit is um, the person of the Trinity who is less manifested than the others, but there's still a person. And this Holy Spirit is eternally God, omnipotent, causing creation, omniscient, knowing all, omnipresent everywhere. So, how then can the Holy Spirit be inside of us? Well, it's not a physical reality. Like, he's not like right here. He's everywhere, but he's not, God is not everywhere in the same way. God can manifest his presence in a special way. And God doesn't relate to everyone in the same way. So, when we say we're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, that means that God is manifesting his presence in us in a very special, unique, and powerful way. And God is relating to us in a special, powerful way. And therefore, God is in us. And His presence in us transforms us over time. The Holy Spirit comes when you are born again and gives you the new life that you need. He makes you a new creation the moment He arrives. You get all of the Spirit the moment you're saved. But over time, you will learn to surrender more and more to Him. He gets more of you. It's very relational. It's not mystical. It's not mythical. It's not magic. It's very relational. That's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The fact that God is inside of us is so unbelievable. What's gotten into you? God. I found some pictures of things that people swallowed this week. And physically, it's kind of funny to see a person swallow like a key. So that person swallowed a key (laughs) and then they got to go to the doctor and they look inside and this woman swallowed a ring. Her uh, boyfriend wanted to propose so he put a ring in ice cream and she accidentally ate it and then he's like looking in the cup and he's like, I was going to propose and she didn't believe him. So they went to the doctor and there it is. Will you marry me? This next one is a child who swallowed not just one, but they were so tasty, four AA batteries. Child was fine. That they had. How did that get inside of you? I don't know. Now imagine if you go to the doctor and they were able to perform some sort of a test where it showed God was inside of you. How did that happen? <laughs> Let me read to you from Acts two. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> it's spiritually true. God in us. It says in Colossians one twenty seven. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Wow. So the Holy Spirit comes to live within us. The Holy Spirit causes regeneration, being born again. The Holy Spirit inspired the texts of the Bible and used human authors to write the Word of God, which is called the Sword of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit seals us. It's our proof and our guarantee and our stamp that we will go to heaven, God's Spirit inside of us. The Spirit gifts us and empowers us to serve in the church. The Holy Spirit personally encourages us and reminds us that this world is not our home. Wow! The church is born, and every one of us gets to enjoy the indwelling presence of God's Holy Spirit. Jesus came down from heaven, and that was cool. Christmas is cool. God with us! Emmanuel, and then he left. And when he left, the disciples were like, well, what do we do now? And he's, just, he's just gone. He's just gone. It's over, and that's why Jesus said, don't worry, the Spirit is coming. Now, heaven on earth happens when God is in you. When God is in you. And it's called in Colossians 27 Christ in you. Because it's the Spirit of Christ, the hope of glory. Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? These people were transformed. <clears throat> Jot this down, we are the temple of God. We're therefore the temple of God. If God is in me, if God's Spirit is consuming me, then I am the place of His presence on earth. I don't need a burning bush. Uh, I, I don't need an angel walking in the Garden of Eden. I don't, I don't need a mountain on fire like Sinai. God's in me. God's in me. And in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 to 17, it says this. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Here's a picture of the temple in the Old Testament. And you've got the outer grounds, the wall. and This is a model. And then you've got the uh, outer court, the inner court. You've got the holy place. And then you've got the most holy place, here's a picture of that, where literally it was said, behind that curtain, God dwelled on earth. It was his very throne room, the place where he manifested his glorious presence and power. In the Old Testament, when Solomon built the temple, it was filled with glory so much that they couldn't even go in to do the work. And then when Jesus died, what did he do? The temple's curtain tore in two from top to bottom, showing that the way is now open, we are all welcome, not just to enter God's presence, but to become God's presence. In First Corinthians, when it says, do you not know that you are God's temple? First of all, it's plural, meaning in a sense, we. God's spirit dwells in us together in a special way. But when it uses the word temple, it doesn't use the word for the outer building. It uses the word for the very inner sanctuary of the place. The very holiest of holy places is now who. We are. Wow. Wow. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. We are the temple of God. Jot this down. We manifest God's presence and His power. We are proof that God is present and proof that He is powerful. The way that that happens here is the disciples suddenly are able to speak in other tongues. It says in verse 4, They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, in this text, these tongues are all known languages that that the believers miraculously are given the ability to speak. We're supposed to see that this is impossible. All right? This is impossible. That they just suddenly learn, bam, I know Japanese. Boom! I know how to speak Chinese. You know? Boom! Like, I hear the commercials for Rosetta Stone. You know, do you hear those commercials? Learn how to speak a different language. I'm like, I'd love to speak a different language. But it's so much work. So I don't. I took like two years of Spanish in high school and I don't remember a word of it. I know taco. I know chalupa. I know salsa. Gordita. I know all the commercials from Taco Bell and that's it, right? (coughs) That's it. But imagine, imagine if the coming of the Spirit was evidenced by you just know another language out of nowhere. And then how crazy it is that these disciples, these hicks, pour out into the streets and they're suddenly speaking in every language mode among the people there and everyone's blown away. I'd love to get just kind of a feel for what this was like. Um, We did this in the first service too, but there there are many people in this service who know how to speak a different language than English. Raise your hand if you know how to speak a different language than English. I'd love to give you a chance to just help me out with this, to stand up and in the other language you know to say, listen to me, Jesus is risen. So can somebody just stand up and say that in a different language? Go ahead. Say it nice and loud. I love it. Stay standing. All right. Who else can, who else can do that? Say a different language. Who wants to do it? Come on. I need a volunteer. Yeah, go ahead. Listen to me. Jesus is risen. One more. Can I get one more person to do it? Listen to me. Jesus is risen. Come on. You get bonus points in heaven if you... S- <laughs> Go ahead, go ahead. Sweet. Now wait, all three of you say it at the same time. Okay, ready, set, go. Now imagine if all of us were doing that. <laughs> in different languages, about 120 people. I don't know, there might be like 140 in here or something. Imagine if we all just walked down into the center of Palis and each one of us were like, ha ha, look what I can do. It would be pandemonium. Right? Like it would be crazy. But what we would be saying is it says they were declaring the wonders of God. Be declaring the wonders of God. What language did you get? What language did you get? Right? (laughs) I got French. Oui. (laughs) Like what it'd be so cool. But it's not just a magic trick. If they didn't just go out there and they're like, watch the fire come out of my, you know, there it wasn't magic. It was there was a message. There was a message. And if you know your Bible. When was the other time in the Bible that God tinkered with all the languages of humanity at once? <coughs> Babel. Why did he do that? That's, that's a different thing. He comes down, everyone spoke kind of the same language, and he, this would be actually really funny to re- reproduce this, he actually, longer, you, no, now you don't speak English anymore, bam, you can only speak Japanese, goodbye. And, and imagine if all of us were suddenly like, eh? How blessed, can you? Huh? and we couldn't communicate anymore. He, he confused the languages at first so we couldn't talk to each other. And that was a preservative that created the cultures and the languages and the nations of the earth so we couldn't all get together and rise up and create another flood situation. Now, at Pentecost, when the church is born, now God begins the regathering. The reversal of Babel. Now I'm going to bring them all back together under one kingdom, under my son Jesus Christ. Wow. Do you see the beauty and the purpose and the power of the church Now today, how do we manifest the presence and power of the Spirit? Primarily, Galatians 5.22 makes it clear. It's through lives changed in community. In Galatians 5.22, you could probably say these from heart. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is now the transformed community We're becoming different together. That's what shows the world, wow, God must be there, and boy, is He powerful. God gets glory by changing lives. What is the church? Number one, believers in Jesus Christ. Number two, filled with the Holy Spirit. Number three and four are going to come more quickly because we're going to camp on these next week. But jot this down. Number three, gathering for God's glory. Gathering for God's glory. Our church has a mission statement, and it is glorifying God, Through the fulfillment of the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Glorifying God, becoming proof of His presence and power. How? By fulfilling the Great Commission, going and making disciples. And by fulfilling the Great Commandment, loving one another. That's what we do. That's why we're here. We gather for God's glory. And it says here in chapter 2, verse 1, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together. The New Testament church is always a gathering church. Even when they're scattered, they begin gathering wherever they go. And one foundational thing that you have to realize about the church is we are meant to gather for God's glory. It's in the gathering that comes God's provision and His protection, God at work stories, strength when we suffer, power when we're weak. God manifests His glorious presence in His church. That's how we encounter God together in community. Community that can be found nowhere else on the planet. That's the vision. Now let me just challenge you this week that you make it a commitment this year to gather in community with the church. I know that we provide a live stream where you can watch online, but I'd like for that to be your backup plan, all right? That's if you're sick. That's if your arm fell off. Something pretty serious, all right? The online is not meant to be for those who prefer pajama worship, all right? I'd love for you to make sure that you are coming and gathering here physically if you're in town and if you're healthy because that is the way the church is described. It's a gathering community, not a watching from afar, but a coming together. I have a feeling when you get to heaven and you get to explore your mansion and when it's time to go out and worship, you're not going to be like, I'll just watch it online. You're going to get there. We're going to gather, and it's going to be pretty amazing. So see that as just a backup plan. But I'd love for you to be here gathering because, listen, because, listen, because this is where we encounter God. This is where we enjoy community that can be found nowhere else on earth. It's spectacular. Jot this down. We learn here that the church is spiritually united in Christ. The coming of the wind, the gathering, and then separating of the flame Into all the believers shows that we all have something We all have something We are a body Every metaphor used in the New Testament To describe the church implies unity We're a body and each of us is members We're a building and each of us is a stone Uh, Jesus said uh, That uh, He said that he is the vine dresser Right I'm the vine, you are the branches We're united to him There's always unity When it comes to the unity, it's important to realize that the spiritual unity of all of the believers is already a reality because of God's Spirit. We don't come here to create that unity. It's already done. We come to enjoy it and we come to enrich it. I told my students once when I was a youth pastor, look, we're united forever. What we do with that is up to us. And if you take two cats and you tie them by the tail and you throw them over a clothesline, oh, they're united. But they're not happy about it. Let's be happy about it. We're united. Let's be happy about it. We have an unbreakable bond with Christ and with every other believer. We are charged with preserving and enjoying the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That's what we do, it's already a reality. Together we worship, together we pray, we connect, we care for one another. And our love displays the reality of God's love to a watching world that doesn't yet enjoy what we do. We're spiritually united in Christ. Acts 9.31 describes the church at its best. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit It multiplied. That's going to be my prayer for our church all year long. That describes the church at its best. I read one author who described the church at its best, and it was so exciting. He said this, There's nothing like the local church when it's working right. Its beauty is indescribable. Its power is breathtaking. Its potential is unlimited. It comforts the grieving. It heals the broken in the context of community. It builds bridges to seekers and offers truth to the confused. It provides resources for those in need and opens its arms to the forgotten, the downtrodden, the disillusioned. It breaks the chains of addictions, frees the oppressed, and offers belonging to the marginalized of the world. Whatever the capacity for human suffering, the church has a greater capacity for healing and wholeness. Isn't that an amazing description of the church at its best? But listen, this was written by Bill Hybels. And so I shared that on purpose because what he said is true. What he lived brought about such damage to the church. We have to have this same ideal. We're becoming the church at its best, but we realize what can happen if we get off track. The church at its worst is something that we have to give an answer for and we're going to spend 40 weeks in the book of Ephesians and I'm going to directly I'm going to head on deal with the questions like if the church is the dwelling place of the very Holy Spirit the holiest presence of the love of God how has such nonsense gone on why are so many Christians not flourishing how was I so wounded by what was supposed to be the very place of God's holy how there's so many questions and we're going to go there but the bible is very honest in describing from the earliest days that the church at its worst exists if you read through first and second corinthians oh my goodness corinth was like vegas believers were suing each other the rich were oppressing the poor women were scorning their husbands They were allowing sexual sins in the church like incest. Men were visiting prostitutes. There were doctrinal errors. And then they turned on Paul in favor of more impressive teachers who came to town. They were messed up. The Bible is very honest about who the church can become. The best and the worst. We're meant to gather for God's glory. And we all together have to build the type of church we want to enjoy. We can't just find it and consume it. We have to build it together and then protect it. We're gathering for God's glory. Understand that we are spiritually united in Christ. And then jot this down. We're going to make disciples. Here you have the four fundamentals of what the church is. Believers in Jesus Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, gathering for God's glory, going to make disciples. That's it. Basically, that's what we are and what we're becoming. Right away, the Spirit gave the church a voice and courage. These these cowardly disciples who were hiding in an upper room are suddenly, boldly proclaiming the gospel. They're about to stand before the very men who killed Jesus with courage that they never had when Jesus was on earth with them. And it's because God was in them now. We are empowered to be His witnesses. We are called to go and make disciples. Back to chapter 2, verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is our gospel. This is our message. I wonder if um, next week, if you would be willing to invite a friend to church. Next week is going to be Bring a Friend Sunday. And will you help us to become a welcoming church? Will you help us to become a group of people that reaches out and invites others? And will you invite people who maybe, they've never even been to a Protestant church, they don't even know what it is. Will you invite, invite people who aren't churched? Even if you think they'll say no. Uh, will you invite people who maybe they've been, they've been out of church for a while. Maybe they're, they're orphan Christians, they don't have a church home. Will you look around in your life and see the fish that are all around you, and then just cast a net. And will you invite people to come to church next week? We are meant to go and make disciples. We're meant to be a friendly, welcoming church, and so I'd love for you to courageously invite other people next week. Jot this down. We boldly proclaim the good news of Jesus. When people hear the life-changing message of the gospel, lives are changed forever. It says in verse 41, those who received his word were baptized And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Man, imagine the problems we would have if next week we had 3,000 people showing up. Where are all these babies going to go in our nursery, right? We don't have that much food. They're drinking all of our coffee. Holy cow, the church was exploding. And this is obviously very rare. You don't see this type of growth overnight. But we do want God to add to our number those who are being saved, don't we? We do want to think about those who don't have the hope that we do. Praise God, we're not alone. I want to close out by sharing with you the the good news that we are a part of a fellowship of churches, about 130 churches called the Great Commission Collective. And uh, many of us were planted around the same time. And that's where Lauren and I were last week. We went to a retreat where we met with 180 people, pastors and their wives and other servants in the church who represent churches from all over the world. Here's some pictures from that. Uh, We have Pastor Alex from Kiev. We helped to plant his church Few years ago, and I coached him, and we installed an elder and a deacon uh, this year, and it was awesome to spend some time with them and hear what God's doing in Ukraine. And then the next picture is Pastor Brandon from Rochester, New York. He was on staff at our church, and we sent him out to plant a church, which was so exciting to hear. Here's another picture. Just the room is filled with people from Romania and Scotland and the Caribbean. Uh, there were people from all over the world who were, who were exalting the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and sharing what God's doing in, uh, in Mexico City, what God's doing in Miami, what God's doing. We, we heard stories from all over the world. Uh, and I want you to be encouraged that we're not alone. We have a family of churches, a network of churches in Canada, North America, all over, uh, who are building churches on the same fundamental values that we are building on. And when we hear that God's church, the shockwaves, are still rippling around the world today, that should give us courage that He's going to use us to reach Palis and Alsip, and Crestwood, and Chicago, and Illinois, and the whole region. He's going to use us to still do what He started so many years ago. Well, this is a great point to close out by asking, do you have a story? Are you a part of the church? Are you a born-again follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? If not, I want to give you a chance to make that important decision right now. Let's close our eyes and let's close out this service with prayer. In fact, let's stand up together. We're going to close out in prayer right now. We're not going to do the closing song. We're going to close out in prayer together right now. Father in heaven, we give you glory because you are the one who sent Jesus Christ from heaven to earth so that we could be saved, so that we could be born again. We give you glory, Jesus, because you came down and ransomed the people for yourself and went back up to prepare a place for us. And we give you great glory, Holy Spirit, because you are with us right now. But I think of those who came to church today and they don't have the hope that we spoke of. They don't have the transformed experience that we talked about today. And I just think of those, Lord, who are longing to encounter you, who are longing to know you, who are longing, O oh Lord, to have you with them in their lives. If that's you, if you know that you need a personal relationship with Jesus, if you want the Holy Spirit to be in you, right now I just ask that you would pray. These aren't magic words, but you should pray in your own heart saying this Father, forgive me, for I have sinned. I repent and turn away from my sins right now. I forsake. The love that I've had for sin, the bondage that I've had in sin, I turn away from it all right now. Jesus, I ask you to be my Lord. Jesus, I ask you to be my Savior. Come into my life. Fill me with your powerful presence. Transform me to be like you and to know you. Father, I pray for all those who are inviting Jesus to be Savior and Lord right now. Give them the assurance that you will never leave them, that you will never forsake them that you will be with them now and always, and that they can come and continue to gather and encounter God in His church. We pray, O Lord, that you would be glorified in the church this week, and bless us as we invite people to come next week. Do wonderful things because you are with us and we aim to glorify you. And we pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, who is the head of the body of the church. In His mighty name we pray, amen.